you like to swap cases? Now. No. No. decided to go all the way you believed in this case, you're going without a safety net. This case either has one dollar in it or it has a million dollars in it. You're either going home with one million dollars or one dollar, Richie, Bell. You are going home with No matter how many times I watch that video, I feel bad for the guy every single time. He gave up $200,000 in exchange for $1. I mean, talk about a bad day, right? Well, hey, we are, uh, again, so glad that you're here with us at Crossroads. Thanks for taking time out of your weekend uh, to uh, be a part of what we're doing. If it's your first time or first time in a long time or, or you're with us every single weekend, we want you to know that uh, we're really glad that you're here. Now, if you missed last weekend, my former youth pastor, Rick Kyle, preached and, and did just an awesome job. In fact, I am sick of you telling me how good of a job that he did, all right? In between services, one guy came up to me and he said, man, that guy's amazing. He taught some things that you've tried telling us before, but I've just never heard anybody like him. And I just kind of shook his hand and smiled, but deep down I'm thinking, well, that's great. I hope you liked him because he's never coming back, you know. <laughs> I'm kidding. He'll be back in a month or so, and uh, it'll be good to, to have him back for a third time with us. Uh, here at Crossroads. Now, now it's so weird to think that uh, it's at the, we're at the end of February now, and that means one thing, the best time of year is right around the corner, March Madness. Anybody in here excited about that? All right, about five of us. Woo! Yeah, if you're not excited, that just means you're an IU fan. Uh, I get it. It's true, I, I cheer on IU, it's all good, I, I understand. Now, you have to understand, I love college basketball. It's kind of a hobby of mine. I love it all season long, just about every day. I'm reading articles about different teams. I try to watch different games, even if my team's not playing. Now, one little thing that you may not know about me, I don't know if I've shared this with you before, but whenever my team is playing, I hate watching the game with other people around. Anybody else feel my pain on that? Yeah, I mean, I am so focused and narrowed in on the game that I just kind of tune everything else out. And when a ref makes a bad call, I mean, I get upset. I start yelling at the TV screen. And I mean, I just get in a bad mood. And I know I probably need to be a part of a recovery group here at Crossroads. Now, here, here's what I've learned in my hobby of college basketball. It goes like this, that, that the more passionate I am about my team, the more polarizing I tend to be to hang out with, right? I mean, I, I read articles and, and if a writer doesn't at least mention my team and how good they're playing, I get a little bit insecure. I'm biased in that way. If I'm watching another game and a commentator doesn't, you know, talk about how they're one of the best teams in the country, I think, well, that guy just doesn't know what he's talking about. You know what I'm saying? And, and even as I'm watching them play, I don't see the opposing team as just a, an opponent. No, I see them as the enemy. 
I mean, I see them as like the satanic forces, demons, you know? I mean, I have that tendency to be that polarizing, and, and I know I probably need help with that, but, but again, the, the more passionate I am about my team, the more polarizing I, I am to be around. And I suppose it's, it's one thing when we have that competitive spirit when it comes to college basketball, but we both know that when something surfaces in an everyday conversation regarding scripture, the church, or Jesus, we, we all have our opinions, and, and you have your reason of why you believe or why you don't believe that, and, and we can become very passionate about our side to a point where if you don't see things the way that we do or I do, then you're wrong. And in fact, if you don't see it the way I do, then you can just go on your way and we can even justify our mistreatment of people based upon differences in beliefs. In fact, if you were to look at the history of the church over the past 2,000 years, one of the reasons why the church seems to be so divided into different denominations and, and movements is because somewhere along the way, a leader or a group of leaders or churches got together and said, no, th this is the correct interpretation of Scripture. And, and so all of a sudden, division started happening, not over really matters of salvation, not, not over matters of, of essentials, but really over secondary issues issues in scripture. And so the more passionate we are about some of these things, the more polarizing we tend to be, right? And it's kind of always been that way. We can take comfort in that. And so that's what we're going to talk about as we continue our study in the uh, first, uh, in, in, in first Corinthians, a letter found in the New Testament. All right. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn there now. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there should be a black Bible right there in front of you. Uh, that's our gift to you. Feel free to take that home when you leave here today. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, uh, that Bible should be on one of those tables as you walked in a little bit ago. First Corinthians can be found towards the back of your Bibles in between the books of Romans and Second Corinthians. And today we're going to be in uh, chapter 8, picking up uh, in verse 1. Now, as you're turning there, uh, it's pretty hard to overemphasize how the church has always been a pretty messed up place, okay? It's been that way from the beginning. We've seen that in this study uh, of 1 Corinthians. This church was started by a guy named Paul in the ancient city of Corinth, and, and he wrote this letter because this church was so screwed up. It had a lot of brokenness inside it. And again, it's always been that way. And, and to a degree, I got to tell you that I take a little bit of comfort in that, the Crossroads is a very imperfect church. We're all a mess. We're all broken. And, and I like it that way because at least I know that this is a place where I fit in and belong. You know what I mean? In fact, I've said it before and I'll say it again that if you think this is a perfect church, then it's not. And if you're looking for that perfect church, you just better keep on looking because this isn't it. But here's the thing. If we as a church haven't disappointed you, frustrated you in some way yet, just give us a few more weeks, all right? It's bound to happen. We're all flawed, we all make mistakes, and, and none of us have arrived yet. And so because of this church's dysfunction 2,000 years ago, the starter of the church, Paul, decided to address some of their, address some of their questions and dysfunction. And, and so chapter 8 serves as an answer to a really important question that the Corinthians were asking. But before he specifically answers this question, he seems to dodge their question by reminding them of something much greater, something much bigger at play. And that we can summarize by saying it like this. Paul's communicating that what you believe 
should never determine how you treat those who believe differently. What you believe should never determine how you treat those who believe differently. Now, for some reason, we tend to think that if somebody sees something a little bit differently than us, if we have disagreements, that that's kind of justification to mistreat them. But really, the Bible would say that when we do that and we use that as a test of friendship or fellowship, we're, we're really missing the point. We're overlooking what's more important. Matthew chapter 23, we see Jesus confronting and even mocking the religious leaders of their day, of his day, because they were sacrificing a tenth of their spices in honor to God and worship to God, yet Jesus says, you you can do all that all you want, you can obey the law as closely as you possibly can, yet you're overlooking what's what's most important. You see, the Pharisees weren't loving people well. They were making it difficult for people to find God. And and so Jesus said, look, it doesn't matter that you're tithing your spices. You've missed the point because you aren't loving people. And so division in the church should never happen because of our lack of love. And so for the Corinthians, that was in jeopardy. Knowledge should never supersede our love for one another. Check out chapter 8, verse 1. Here's what we read. Paul says this. Now about food, sacrifice to idols... We all know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think that they know something do not know as they ought to know, verse 3, but whoever loves God is also known by God. It was very common back then for certain animals uh, to be sacrificed in in pagan temples. Followers of these cults and religions believed that these sacrifices would earn them favor uh, with the gods. So after a priest slaughtered the animal for worship, he would then butcher it up and then throw it on his grill at home. But then what he would then do is take the other parts of the animal that he didn't use and he would either sell it or he would give it to some of his followers. Now, this is where their meat was coming from. And, and you thought the meat from Taco Bell was bad, you know? <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the source of, of their meat. Now, the animal that was usually sacrificed was, was a lamb in the ancient world, all right? And truthfully, the, the meat, it wasn't all that bad. That's horrible. Don't laugh at that. Todd's been rubbing off on me too much. <laughs> and so after the, it's horrible. I'm so sorry, all right? <laughs> Now, after the priest took his share of meat home with him, uh, some of it went to local markets. You see, many of the first followers of Jesus had grown up in a Jewish context and environment and were forbidden, according to the Jewish law, they were forbidden to eat any of that kind of meat. And so when they converted to Christianity and they began following Jesus, it was tough for them to get rid of this rule and to let go of that. And at the same time, there were some in the church who didn't have any obligation to obey that. They saw nothing wrong with eating meat that had been sacrificed to gods. It wasn't a big deal to them. And so the church was split. It was divided because the more passionate somebody was about their, per, their perspective, the more polarizing the church became. It's almost like it became a contest among the Corinthians. I mean, who could persuade more people to see things the way that, that they saw them? Who could appear to be the freest or the most committed to Jesus based upon how well they obey? And so pretty soon, we we aren't just talking about meat that had been sacrificed to to pagan gods. All of a sudden, the the argument is really about pride. And so that's why Paul says, look, knowledge puffs up. 
Now, you might be thinking to yourself right now, man, that just seems so stupid. I mean, why in the world would somebody care that much about the source of their food? I mean, why would they really care about where their meat came from? And truthfully, a lot of people do today. They're called millennials, you know? And yet, this is the first century version of their meat being local, right? Peter would have had a heyday with them back then. And so for the Corinthians, obviously, they had missed the point. They were completely overlooking what was most important. And you see, we can lose our focus, too, if we're not careful. And so the first question I want us to ask ourselves goes like this. Is winning an argument more important to you than loving someone? Is winning an argument more important to you than than actually loving someone? Now, this became a very heated discussion in the Corinthian church because these new Christians were invited to, to different social functions and culture where this kind of meat was being served. And so on one side of the spectrum, there was nothing wrong with eating it. Some believe that. After all, Jesus has freed us from having to obey the law and live up to his standards. These believers are who Paul referred to as those who are strong, and we're gonna see that later on. Paul made it very clear that there was nothing sinful about eating the meat that had been sacrificed to these pagan gods because the gods weren't even real. They were fake idols anyway. But while the strong believers in this church were right, they were still in the wrong. You see, they felt like their knowledge made them better than those who believed differently than them. And I suppose it's one thing if if they were arguing about the validity of Jesus' identity or if they were arguing about the fact that Jesus really did die and and rise again three days later or had something to do with, with salvation. I mean, even Paul had quite a reputation of confronting false teachers or leaders in the church that were watering down sin and grace and and messing with the overall message of Jesus. Those are what we would call primary beliefs. Primary beliefs are essential, are essential teachings in Scripture that we submit to as Christians. But these Corinthians, they weren't arguing over essentials. They were arguing over non-essentials. My uh, oldest sister, Kara, and her uh, husband, Matt, are both doctors over in Louisville. And they were telling me recently that back when they were in medical school, they had this one professor who was a surgeon. And one day he got up in front of class and he walked them through his routine every time he went to the hospital and was about to perform surgery. He would arrive at the hospital, go to his locker, change into his scrubs, and then he would pull this little sheet out of his pocket and he would read off what that sheet said. On the sheet it said, liver's on the right, Splains on the left. (laughs) Now, this guy knew so much. I mean, he was very respected in his field. And yet, Kara told me that he never wanted to be too confident going into surgery. Now, there are some mistakes that a surgeon might make during a procedure that you may not even know about that won't result in a lot of consequences, all right? But then there are other mistakes. They may seem simple, yet you might really reap some consequences. It could be a fatal mistake, right? I mean, none of us want a doctor operating on us that has forgotten the basics of the human body, the anatomy that makes up a body. And you see, in a similar way, there's stuff in Scripture that if, if we don't get right, and if we don't believe, it can be fatal to, to our salvation. And at the same time, there's stuff in Scripture that really has nothing to do with our salvation. It just may be an interpretation issue or, or that we choose to see things a little bit differently. 
Now, one thing that you may not know or never have heard before, and that's this, that, that while all scripture, is equal, all scripture is breathed by God and is inspired by him, not all scripture is equally important. Where do I find the authority to say that? Well, later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul said, hey, when I was with you, I preached and taught what was of first importance to you. What's of first importance? Well, Paul said that, that Jesus died, that he was buried, and then three days later, he rose again, offering us the assurance of eternal life. And so if we don't get that right, and if we don't believe that, then, then we, don't, we aren't Christians. It's impossible to reject the claim of Jesus' resurrection and still be a follower of him. And so stuff in scripture that we may see differently, though, are what some might call disputable matters. This may include what you believe about the end times, how Jesus is going to come back and, and what that's going to look like, how often maybe we should take communion. You may disagree about that. When a person should be baptized, when he or she becomes a Christian. The way leadership is organized in the church, or the process for growing in your faith, various worship styles. These are all non-essentials, disputable matters. Now, we're also given a lot of freedom in the Bible in choosing how we approach culture. This includes things like what shows you allow your family to watch, what kind of movies you'll see, what type of education you want your child to have, should you celebrate Halloween or not, I mean, how should you dress? These are disputable matters, non-essentials. In Bible college, I learned a, a slogan or a phrase that uh, a church leader hundreds of years ago came up with. You Maybe you've heard it before, but, but it goes like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, love. And that sounds nice and, and inspirational. But do we really believe that? I mean, can we really learn to get along with those of us who maybe see things a little bit differently? You see, disagreeing with somebody how they believe it, is never permission for us to not love them. You see, when we choose to make a point over showing love, we're really the ones in the wrong. My experience has been that it's really difficult for us to love somebody when all we think about is how we're better, we're smarter, we're quicker, we're stronger, we're richer, we're faster. Jesus never said to maintain your convictions, and that should come at the cost of, of loving others. He never said that. Back in 1934, a, a delegate a leader for um, a movement of churches here in America, went over to Germany to help start some churches over there. And this is a message that he sent back to his denomination, his line of churches in 1934, reporting about what it was like to live under the Nazi regime. Check out what he wrote. He said this, it was a great relief to be in a country where salacious sex literature cannot be sold, where future motion pictures and gangster films cannot be shown. The new Germany has burned great masses of corrupting books and magazines along with its bonfires of Jewish and communistic libraries. It was noted that this church leader also defended Hitler because he was a man that abstained from alcohol, abstained from smoking, and he enforced women to dress modestly. Now here's our challenge today. What will future generations in the church say about us? Where have we maybe missed the point? Where have you overlooked what Jesus says that, that, that comes first? How have we missed living out what, what takes priority? Later on in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul goes so far to say it like this in chapter 13, if I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. 
So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. And so Paul says that, that we can think and do everything right, but apart from loving people, it, it's absolutely pointless. You see, the way we love other people is a reflection of how much God loves them, and, and really it reflects how much we understand God loves us. That's why the Bible says that we love because God first loved us. Our ability to love is tested most when somebody disagrees with us. Now let's turn the discussion around a little bit, and let me ask you this question, all right? It goes like this. How easy is it to offend you? How easy is it to offend you? If you say it's not that easy, I bet I can try, all right? <laughs> How easy is it to offend you? This sounds backwards because we justify being offended by saying that, that we're sticking up for what's right. We're a watchdog for, for truth or justice. Now, Paul goes so far to explain that eating meat was not a big deal because they were false gods. They weren't even real. And that's why he says this, skipping down to verse 7, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some People are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Now notice how those that were offended and were easily angered by those who did partake in that freedom, Paul refers to them as weak. Now, it's a really interesting word because in the Greek, where we get the word weak, it was actually a medical term during the first century, and it describes somebody's failing physical condition. It's actually where we get the modern-day word asthenia. It comes from this Greek word. Asthenia describes a deteriorating heart or muscles, as well as the way somebody might feel as they go through cancer or they have tuberculosis, all right? When the body is very susceptible to other, uh, is very susceptible to other sicknesses, it's in a state of being asthenia. Have you ever uh, noticed someone walking around wearing one of these before out in public or something, the mask? You ever seen anybody wear one of these? Yeah, who, who wears these kind of masks? People who maybe have a low immune system, right? They can easily pick up germs, and so they don't want to get sick. And so this mask is intended to protect them from what they may be susceptible to. Now, the other people that might need to wear these are those that maybe haven't brushed their teeth in like three weeks, and they get that close, and they talk to you. Do you know who I'm talking about? Like, hey, let me do you a favor. Why don't you wear this, all right? But this mask is worn to protect from germs because the immune system might be low and they're susceptible to something greater. They're susceptible to a greater sickness. And so in a similar way, when we get offended, we are susceptible to some other things. And, and when we are offended by something, we either isolate ourselves in the church, we, we distance people away from us, or what we do is we, we put on this mask, right? Right? And this mask is a way of, of protecting ourselves. It's a way to keep ourselves pure, maybe. I'll never forget about a year ago, I was talking to uh, one of my best friends on the phone, and um, I was pretty upset about something. I was offended by something that somebody had said. I don't even remember what it was about, but I just kind of went off and was venting to him. And all of a sudden, about three minutes into our conversation, he just said, are you done yet? And then he said, you know, you, you've been talking that way about people a lot lately. And the conversation took a turn. He didn't say anything else. He didn't really have to because when I hung up that phone a few minutes later, I realized what was happening. And I'm not proud of this, 
but here's what I was convicted of that day. I was offended by someone else because I didn't want to look at what was offensive in me. It was easy for me to point out the sin in someone else's life because I didn't want to look at my own. You see, it's much easier for me to point out what's offensive in you than for me to actually look at what's offensive in me. That's uncomfortable, right? And yet the Bible would simply call this pride, selfishness. Author C.S. Lewis says this about pride. He said, there is no fault, talking about pride, which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Isn't that true? So for just a second, I want you to close your eyes. I want you to reflect back on this past week. What were those moments that angered you the most? What comment did one of your kids, maybe your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, or maybe a coworker mate towards you that, that offended you the most? When did you feel insecure or uncomfortable? When did you say something back to someone that, that you wish you could take back and you quickly regretted? Whatever that moment is that, that has surfaced in your mind, what, what were you trying to cover up by being offended? Were you maybe not given enough credit for your work? Did someone make light of something that maybe triggered a bad memory from your past? Did, did you get offended because you felt like you lost control in a circumstance? You can open your eyes. You see, here at Crossroads, we want to keep making this place a safe place for lost and broken people to come in here and find hope and healing. One time Jesus was being criticized because he hung out with lost and broken people. And, and so he responded to the religious leaders by saying this, hey, you know what? It's not, a, it's not a, the healthy people who need a doctor. It's the sick. And that's why I've come. And so if that's what Jesus said, then, then the church, his community, is more like a hospital where lost and broken and sick people can come here and find healing. That's what Jesus intended for his church to be. Yet when sick people show up here, sometimes our natural reaction might be to put on this mask and point out the other stuff in people's life that maybe offends us. Why? So we can protect ourselves from germs that they might throw onto our life. Several years ago, there was a lady who was baptized in one of our services and some guy approached one of our pastors directly after service. He was irate. He said, I can't believe that you guys would let somebody like that woman be baptized in a service here at our church. I've seen the way that she dresses, and it's just horrible. Our pastor took him outside, and he said, hey, look, that is an attitude and a mentality of a Pharisee that Jesus butted heads with most, here's what I suggest that you do. You go home, repent, and you actually connect with the Jesus that that woman just found. And so we want to be watchdogs about this being a safe place for people who come in here contaminated to sort their stuff out. And here's the thing. If Jesus only hung out with people who had it all together, then you know what? I never would have been found. I'd still be lost. And so would you. And sometimes expressing how we've been offended is our way of telling people that they should look, talk, and act just like us. But our job is not to do that. Our job is to point people to Jesus and not complicate it or get in the way. Let's finish up by looking at verse 8. Paul wrote this. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Now, as this church argued about their opinions, they needed to remember that the issue had nothing to do with where they stood before God. 
Paul gave them the freedom to choose whether or not to abstain from the meat that had been sacrificed to these pagan gods. And so my last question for us goes like this. In what ways have you denied yourself freedom? In what ways have you denied yourself freedom? The reality is that those who chose to abstain had denied themselves something that God had declared as permissible. It was acceptable. And so Paul stressed that in verse 8, that refraining, abstaining, it doesn't make you any more spiritual, doesn't make you any closer to God. Not at all. At another point in Paul's ministry, he wrote, to the church in Rome, to Christians in Rome about this very issue. He said, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. In other words, nothing's off limits. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love, Paul said. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. And so Paul right here tells the the Romans that there's freedom in Christ to enjoy in moderation what he created as long as it's not clearly sin. Paul took it one step further and said that if you don't have a personal conscience against it, then don't let someone else convince you into forming a conscience about it. Now, there are moments when we're called to forsake what we maybe have the right to do so that those around us don't end up hurt, addicted, distracted, or maybe angry. Sometimes the most loving thing that we can do in different environments for somebody is to surrender what we have the right to do so that they don't end up in bondage. But you see, exercising our freedom and moderation, it's never been a threat to the church. It's not. But do you know the one thing that has consistently been a barrier For people bumping into Jesus, the one thing that has kept the church from moving forward, it's legalism. Legalism is when we overemphasize rules, standards, obedience, and it's really motivated by fear. Legalism is draining, it's dangerous, and it makes us resent God. It cultivates hypocrisy, and it really communicates to people, hey, you know what? We only care about your behavior. We don't really care about what's going on inside here. Three weeks ago, uh, I was in service doing an announcement around offering time and I said something that was so stupid. (laughs) I know that's shocking. Uh, But I was talking about how through your generosity we've been able to uh, expand some of our partnerships across the globe and and we're so excited about what God is doing through uh, Crossroads here. And, And one particular partnership that I mentioned was how recently we've been able to expand our work in India and more specifically in the city of Dubai. Now, if you own a map, uh, Dubai's not in India, all right? And so I said that from stage during our nine o'clock hour, walked backstage, and our creative arts pastor, Daryl Marin, met me back there. He had his phone in his hand. He said, Dubai's not in India. This is a much nicer way of saying it, but Dubai is not in India. Look at the map, 1,400-mile difference. It's a part of the United Arab Emirates. Now, I knew that, to my credit, that it was a part of the United Arab Emirates, but I just assumed that United Arab Emirates, the country, was just another way of saying India. (laughs) Did you know where Dubai was, anybody? You're lying. Come on. (laughs) I thought, well, what Manhattan is to New York City, uh, India is to the United Arab Emirates, and so when he talked, I felt like such an idiot, and so right before I'm to walk out to preach, I'm 
thinking, man, everybody out there probably thinks I'm the biggest idiot. I can't believe I said that. I could have at least looked at a map before I walked out there. I mean, how uninformed was I? And so all the while I'm preaching, I can't get comfortable up here. I'm feeling awkward. And, and I think that everybody is thinking that in their mind. And, and you want to know what's ironic about that? If you remember three weeks ago, what I was talking on that weekend was how we all need to let go of the labels and the whispers in our minds that aren't true. And so while I was telling you to let go of your labels and whispers, I had my own. It's much easier to say, hey, you need to let go of that than it is to actually do it, right? And so why, why did I feel that way that morning? Why did I feel so insecure? Well, honestly, it's because I was really concerned about how I looked. I was more concerned about my image than I was focusing on what was more important, and that was teaching the word of God. And you see, that's what legalism does, is it enforces this kind of pressure to act a certain way when deep down there may not be even inward transformation. You see, so much of our frustration, anger, bitterness, and jealousy comes from the belief that God's grace is dependent upon our performance and what we bring to the table. Some of us think that Jesus is just waiting over the edge of heaven, waiting for us to mess up and blow it. And no wonder some of you resent and avoid God. Paul says in another letter, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, he said, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm. And don't let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Now, freedom is both the means and the end with Jesus. He has freed us from having to earn his affection through rule keeping. And here's the other thing. He's also freed us to be who he wants us to be, to be who we've, cre- we've been created to be. Samuel Took was a mental health performer during the 19th century. He spent much of his life working in asylums across uh, England. And one time, Took tried to treat his patients by taking them out into public and teaching them proper manners and how to behave. So everything from tea parties to, to church, Took carefully taught them the right way to act in front of other people. And this method appeared to be working for a time. It got a lot of attention back during his generation. I mean, the patients looked normal. The fix had occurred. But you see, pretty soon, experts realized that his patients were actually worse off because nothing was being done to treat their inner suffering and emotional torment deep down, although they didn't appear to have anything wrong on the outside. And that's the danger of legalism. It's possible for us to live a very moral life and yet totally miss Jesus. The problem of focusing on the outside is that we miss what's wrong on the inside, But Jesus sees all that, and do you know what his offer is to you today? His offer isn't, I I can't believe you. (laughs) His offer isn't to berate you, to shout at you, or to tell you how disappointed he is in you. No, his offer is to clean it up, to restore you. 